Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very happy to bring the conversation I had with Salome Sibone. Uh, Salome is a writer, she's a visual artist, thinker, philosopher. She is absolutely fantastic. I really enjoy her her writing. I enjoy her engagements. I enjoy how she thinks about things very outside the box. Um, just super, super, super sharp, super brilliant. And I have been wanting to talk to her for some time. And we finally were able to get something on the books. And uh, we were able to have a, an absolutely lovely conversation. Um, that's really what this is. You know, sometimes on the podcast, I'll do kind of just your standard straight interview. Um, and uh, I think we made a joke that I made an outline for the conversation. And I don't think we touched really any of the, any of the things I had an outline for. We just kind of got on the on the mics and you know, after the kind of pleasantries and just kind of went with it. And, uh, and that's how it feels. It feels very conversational. It's two people having a conversation. Uh, thinking about things that are going on today and trying to just think about them in better ways and how to be better humans. And uh, that's how I see a lot of this conversation. So it it filled me with uh, much joy, this conversation. I really, really uh, got a lot out of this personally, and, and uh, I think everyone else will as well. We start by talking about immigration stories. We talk a bit, a bit about her kind of personal story, her family um, and herself. We talk about um, shifting political sides. We talk about her, some of her personal story about, uh, kind of where she's been on different aspects of the political aisle, um, and, and the reasons for some of the shifts. We talk about, uh, people being incentivized for being kind of the anti in, in many ways. Um, people will, uh, make podcasts or sub stacks or, you know, get a Patreon going to just kind of rail against whatever's going on at the world at the point at that point and and make a lot of money off of it and uh, or or get a lot of social capital and and we talk about that and why we talk about why people believe in their belief systems and why they they love their ideas maybe too hard and uh, is that always a good thing we talk about being undefined I really like this part of the conversation I think that we need to be uh, we're always becoming, we're always evolving and, um, she is, I am. And how do we, uh, find some comfort, but also uncomfortability in the kind of gray and the being undefined in, in some ways. Um, there's obviously moments where that isn't preferred or best, but I think in many you know moments in between, you know, is, yeah, are we, we're in process, you know, we're. We're in one stage of a draft, if you will, and how do we, that's part of living life. And how do we, how do we accept that and, and find a lot of value in that? We talk about online cult leader figures. I have a, a strong allergy to that. And, um, and so we, we talk a little bit about that kind of phenomenon. We talk about having a broad spectrum of opinions in, in different parties and, and having more moderates. Um, not everyone needs to be a moderate. I've said that many times here in the podcast, but how do we not give the megaphone to the loudest people that are the smallest minority of sorts within, you know, politically I'm speaking. So, you know, how do we, again, how do we say like, what are things that are really important for people and how do we boost people up that are really working hard to try and, and, and meet the needs for many people, not focus on, you know, 0.1% and, 
you know, sensationalize it and make money off of it. Uh, we talk about new ideas that arise, but we still use the same old terms. This is something I've talked about with various people, and and we talk about it here. And and you know, how do we how do we keep progressing and moving in society, but we don't, you know, just use stuff we've used before. You know, so you know, the term racism is a kind of, you know. Uh, old term now. I mean, it's a term that is still can be used, but you know, it's used so much that it kind of becomes watered down and and we need to really find maybe new ways or new words or new language to try and explain a a way in which something evolves or, um, and there's many examples of this. And so we, one of the great things about the conversation is, I don't know. She doesn't know. We don't know. We're trying to figure it out. We're trying to have conversations honestly. And so none of it's prescriptive. It's very uh, thinking out loud and trying to to make sense of things in a in a in a practical way, but in a way that respects the humanity of people, and and that's what we're both passionate about. And so, um, she's she's quite lovely. Uh, I I absolutely enjoy the conversation, and uh, I uh, I hope everyone else does as well. You can find this conversation, past and upcoming conversations. Uh, at convergendialogues.substack.com. Get over there, subscribe, follow, engage, tell your friends, etc. Also on YouTube, same thing. And um, make sure you follow Salome on, on online and where she's at and where she's uh, producing her writing. And and um, now I bring it, Salome. Sibone. I'm here with Salome Sibone. Uh, Salome, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very excited to uh, to talk to you. I am very excited to be here. I um I I appreciate you coming on, and um I've wanted to talk to you, I guess, for some time, and glad we could make it happen. Um, before we get into some of the topics we have, um, why don't you tell listeners um who you are, your background, academically, professionally, and otherwise, and um what you're currently up to, and uh, you know writing about or thinking about. Okay, great. Um, I'm currently struggling with the weight of self-consciousness, self-awareness as a being trying to navigate the ever-changing, crazy landscape we now live in. That's probably the best job description. Some might call that philosopher. Some might call that artist. I'm not attached to any of those labels, really. Primarily, the mediums I work in are writing and sometimes visual art. And I'm usually losing my mind on Twitter or sharing something beautiful on Instagram. And I work with an organization called Revolution of One that I love very much that helps to um, give some ideas to younger people to help deal with these like crazy times that try us both existentially and spiritually. Um, What else? What else? I'm Cuban American. I, um, hmm, I hate, I hate intros. You'd think I'd come up with like a good script already to be like, here's A, B, C, and D, but it's It's just like, oh. Usually that the most, the biggest thing is the kind of springboard for, you know, what, uh, sometimes for people it's academics, other people it's professional or for other people it's, it might be more personal, but just so there's a, I guess, a context. So some of the things you mentioned are, I think, definitely appropriate and fair, what you do now how you're, you know, kind of, I guess, you know, identify yourself, whether it's a, you know, artist or a writer, or, you know, philosopher, um, you know, yeah, some background information is helpful too. Cuban American is, is, is great. Did your eggs hatch here or were you on the island? 
Um, no, I was born here. Um, okay. my mom is, she immigrated from Cuba when she was like, I don't know. I think she was like 16 or so. So yeah. Was so it, I was, was born this, here. Was this, uh, so I, my understanding is that with Cuba, there's different waves of migration and each mm -hmm. wave of migration is always a little different. So like there's the first <laughs> wave in like the early sixties, those folks are much different than people that came here in 2011 or something so you know I, there's I've, I've understood that there's difference even with the waves of migration so which one was i guess your mom oh man was that it like is early a on question. um i don't she wasn't okay so there's one that it's very important that i uh do not sully her good name she did not come over on the wave that was like criminals and crazy people <laughs> so there was one wave okay that the the regime specifically was like oh y'all are into immigration bet mm -hmm. and they sent like all of their prisoners all of mm -hmm. their like insane people <laughs> so that was like she did not come over on that uh wave so just to to give her her due um okay. she actually came over very individually um my uncle was the first person in the family to make it to the united states and he did that by this incredible journey of managing to swim long enough to get from Cuba uh, to the American side, which is like Guantanamo Bay, like that base. Mm. So you have to swim for quite a long time and avoid being seen because you'd just be shot in the water. And um, he was able to get to the other side there. And then they hold you for a while. So he was held for a month and was able to get amnesty. And then from there, he sent for the rest of my family to come over. So they didn't go. They kind of went on this more individual route than like one of the um, the larger mm -hmm. uh, immigration waves. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's wow. probably more accurate. Uh, that's that's pretty that's pretty wild. That's a wild story. Doesn't that doesn't when you hear that stuff, doesn't that feel like a movie that's like that didn't really happen? Did that really happen? Right. right? I know. Happen. And the crazy thing is that they're so nonchalant about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't even really get them to talk about it because they're just like, it happened. Like, what <laughs> do you want to keep talking about this for? And I'm like, this is an amazing story. I just can't wrap my head around it. And it's one of the things that it's so good to have that kind of background you know um to draw from because it really tethers you to the real world as much as i can get into my head i mean i can get so narrowly focused on oh my problems i'm procrastinating on this thing or like i shouldn't have eaten that thing you know and then it's like ah uh, there are there's such a larger world of problems that i could have and kind of reminding myself of how much you know my family wanted to just be here mm -hmm. you know then i can't complain okay the ac broke and i hate that <laughs> all right well at least i have an ac and i can pay to fix it you know yeah, this kind of thing yeah. yeah 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 absolutely yeah every time i hear my dad's story my dad uh immigrated here i guess i mean asylum refugee is probably a more applicable term uh nowadays but that's not how he did it he, he did it he he came here uh, also swam uh swam really the, the rio grande he came from el salvador in uh, in 1980 two two years or i guess three years two through two three years into the terrible civil war they had over there that was uh 14 years and um so he came in the beginning it was awful it was terrible and um yeah yeah he came with a big group of people and uh came came over here but uh it's always interesting because when i talk to other uh members of the family that came on that trip and then maybe other ones 
it's always a different story. It's not like <laughs> in terms of like the facts of it, but in terms of like the perspective, mm. um, which is so interesting to me because it's like, oh yeah, it's all the same, but like there's all like these different kind of like shades to it when you when you hear from different vantage points. So, um, oh man, also, I love that. It's also that. very interesting. It's very it's very 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 interesting to to see that. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's uh, I, there's definitely a lot of that for me too. Is where it's like, oh, you know, when I complain or. <laughs> kind of feel kind of like uh, I'm just kind of like down on myself about like whatever or something. It's just like, yeah, well, could be a whole lot worse, and it was a lot worse <laughs> yeah. for like all of my we, my I family could be members. Swimming the Rio Grande, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like not, not not something I want to do, and um, so yeah. So it does it does it does give perspective. Also, I will say that that for 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 uh, first generation folks like ourselves, mm -hmm. it's always a different. Uh, typically, I mean, it's different for each person, but there's always some kind of like, um, not pressure, but sometimes uh, it's always like, I don't know, I, at least for me, it was always like, you know, I want to, you know, both, both sides of my family, but make, you know, my family proud and make sure that I do well, that like it was worth that they came over here the next generation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, you know, make sure I, 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 I do things well and uh, I'm a good human and all that stuff. And, um, and sometimes a little pressure too, but, uh, mostly, mostly not. It's mostly just like, you know, a lot of like, uh, resilience and hard work, whatever you're doing, just kind of like beaten into you, which isn't unique to immigrants, but, uh, there's definitely, again, a unique kind of flavor and how that comes out. So I don't know if that's the yeah. same for you, but interesting. Well, this is a really interesting thing because it's not quite the same for me. And there's nope. an important, oh, yeah, there's an important reason as to why, because I think my, um, my parents took the, the route of like, particularly on like my mom's side, um, cause my dad is born in the United States, but my mom is the one that immigrated and my mom's side of the whole, the family is like only speaks Spanish and is very, you know, tied to that whole experience. But for them, it's kind of a, that's past us. And what we're doing here now is making sure that you have the best life so that you didn't go through what we did. So they, in a way, kind of put that experience so far into the background and focus more on, you know, giving um, the the next generation this great, very different experience from their own um, experience that it's almost like I didn't have that connection. I had to actually seek it out myself and kind of I like I went back to Cuba and that really was a big deal for me because um we, and we can get into this story um we probably will eventually when I was younger before I had gone to Cuba I was definitely a lot more attracted to left-wing ideology and I would even find it in me to kind of like be um apologetic toward communist regimes despite Cuba being one despite my family leaving it because I hadn't seen it and mm -hmm. they never really told me those stories. They never really gave insight into what it was actually like there. And so I was like, oh, well, you left because, you know, you wanted to be here and that's better. I get it. But, you know, they have great literacy in Cuba. And that's that's a fact. Right. And they got good health care. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like. I've I've heard all the things. Look at here the you know they tell us they tell us they have great doctors. We see it, um, and so that's just right. The very like American born naive perspective, which is like yes, sure, the authoritarian regime tells you that there's such and such a literacy rate, and yeah, they do have a lot of doctors, but 
how do those people become doctors? What's the cost for their education into becoming doctors? And later, as I got more curious and and less like less tied to my um my viewpoints of like, oh no, well, I've decided that I like this ideology and like, you know, these things are probably being misrepresented about it, blah, blah, blah. Um, as I became more willing to actually dig into this and understand it, especially after visiting Cuba myself and seeing, oh, this is like borderline inhumane how some people live here, including the family that I still have there, um, which was shocking to me. I mean, I remember um in the summer, they have water trucks in, at least in Havana. Um, there's not even running water in other parts of the country where I have family. But I visited Havana because uh, I have some family there. And while I was there, there are trucks that bring people water. And so you have to go with whatever items you can to collect the water that you're going to use for, I believe it's a week. And um, And so it would be like, older members of my family that have trouble walking, having to walk down like multiple flights of stairs and then carry up water from this water truck. And I'm just there like, this is incredible that this is normal, you know, here that that level of struggle and lack is kind of just a regular part of life. Um, And so being able to experience that firsthand it makes it a lot harder to say, hey, well, they have great literacy. You know, it's like, they, I had to bring um, like those mint creams that you use if you get a sports injury. Like I forget mm-hmm. what they're called, like, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. I had to bring that for family members because they didn't have it there. Mm-hmm. Um, something as simple as that. So uh, nonetheless, my family really didn't give me that insight until I started seeking it out on my own. And once I did, then connecting to that and seeing that firsthand it gave me that same sense of, you know, valuing resiliency, valuing opportunity and the ability to seek opportunity, despite perhaps not having uh, a perfect, you know, shot at it. It's just one of those things that when you see what it looks like to truly lack opportunity and to really be in a place where stagnation is forced upon you, there's just no, there's no chance um, at rising up. There's no you know, there's no dreams in Cuba to a large degree. I remember being really struck by how many of my younger family members just seemed like disconnected in a way from life because there's this sense of waiting. It's like everybody's just passing time. There's not, and it's so different from the United States. And you can make an argument that like, oh, well, we're too rushed. We're too focused on like, gotta do, gotta do, gotta achieve. But the ability to have that where you can pursue what you want and there is a chance at opportunity versus a, a country, an environment where there is no opportunity and that the ceiling is quite obvious. And if you get too ambitious, someone else will bring you down. Um, it's such a strange anti-human environment that it really changed me forever. And so I think that that kind of was where I clicked into that, you know, immigrant value of resiliency and opportunity and all of that. That's um, uh, interesting. Uh, the the your 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 story and your kind of narrative, I guess, because you know, I mean, I don't I don't know how I don't know how how left you were. I don't know if you were an anarchist or a communist, like legitimately. I mean, everyone has a, but not everyone, but many people have a phase of that, but. I guess, do you think maybe, um, 
and I don't know where you're at now. Um, but uh, do you think that maybe that's, I guess, here in the states, uh, you know, part of the problem, right? Mm, part of the problem, and is it is it I guess a necessary variable or component of this like? Unless you experience something or you have a pretty good exposure of an event or series of events, like you're not going to get it. Like many people will, will always, um, not always, but many people will, will look at the, yeah, the finer sides of communism or they'll say, well, what about Scandinavia and their social net mm-hmm. and blah, 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 and, and all that stuff. And um, again, these finer signs of, you know, socialism and things like that. And again, I, I think people make these kind of, uh, caricatures of things, you know, no system is all good or all bad. I mean, I think that there's certainly some interesting ideas with communism or socialism. I think there's interesting ideas, obviously, with capitalism or or anything else. But, you know, they all have issues. One might be a little bit more efficient than others or, you know, we've tried this type of thing um, and it doesn't maybe work in a lot of places or most places. But I don't know. Do you think is that kind of a, 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 a divide for people of like, if it stays too um, idealistic, if it stays too cerebral almost, that it's like, yes, this will be the finer side of things. But, you know, actually, um, it's not. And if you if you go there, you know, to certain places, you'll see how it is. I don't know. What, what do you what do you think? Maybe pulling from your own experience or maybe, you know, exporting that to maybe how other people might need to have that. What do you, what do you think? Well, I think maturity and naivety are a good lens for um, thinking about how we think about politics and society and civilizations, because if I had to boil um, my change in perspective down to one binary, it would be going from being quite naive to being much more mature. And in a way, you can describe maturity as not only looking at the potential upside, but also at the potential downside of something. Okay, wait, but let me ask this though. I I don't think you're saying this, but I want to be clear on it. Are you saying that like only immature, naive people are communists and socialists or, and then, and then once you get older, then you're just like a, a cranky old, like moderate, like capitalist that like just wants free market principles and like that's maturity and that's being an adult because you live in the real world. I mean, I don't think that's what you're saying, but maybe, maybe expound on that a little bit. Um, I like to look at politics as more personality based in some ways. So, I mean, you can think of people that generally fall on the right as being highly risk averse. So they're not going to be um, inspired by progressive politics because all they see is risk and likely very little reward. Whereas on the other side of that spectrum, people see very little risk and primarily focus on the reward. And so in extreme, either of those are going to be um, somewhat poorly calibrated. If you calibrate two too low of a risk tolerance, then you're not going to be changing your society or yourself or whatever you're doing. I mean, if it's even just creative work, if you're too low in risk, then you're not letting enough new things in to be able to discover and to improve. But the other side of that is if you are uh, not risk averse enough, then you become too prone to making too many mistakes too quickly to the point that it's irreparably, uh, you do irreparable damage. And so 
I think that for my personal view, um, I was definitely in the camp of naive worldview that made progressive politics seem perfect. Just why would anybody not want to use the state to solve every problem? I mean, it just makes total sense. What's it there for? Mm -hmm. And Cuba was like an incredible awakening call for me because suddenly I saw, oh, that's why you might not want the state involved in every single thing. Mm -hmm. Because now every single thing is potentially under the control of a large institution that you may no longer have control over. Mm -hmm. And so it's that rising up a little bit of more uh, risk aversion and a seeking of, okay, I see the benefit. So what's the cost? And that's actually, um, that's one of the elements that most significantly changed my worldview. And is most prevalent in mo in the writing that I do in most of the cultural commentary I do is I look at the thing that I'm being presented with and then I just try to see what's missing from this picture what's the likely risk or rather what's the reward that's not being uh sufficiently identified in this thing that we're writing off as entirely risk hmm. so Obviously, the experience, I guess, going home or or we're going to to your your family's home of of Cuba was was very, uh, you know, salient for you. I guess, I guess, I guess, what was that experience like for you in terms of how that made you reconsider a lot of your ideas or or big big ideas and things like that? And I guess where does that I guess put you now, right? As you kind of like as as you're as you as you move away from like home base or you move away from the dock you get out into these waters where it's like okay i don't have my like system that makes sense and you know all of these progressive ideals and all these things and like oh actually if we take things on their merits or on their issue it's complicated and all these things you know how what were i guess other things that you know kept pushing you out into fur further waters and how do you because one thing i see I'm, I'm i'm positive you see this too is one thing I see is that people have mm. usually it might be a little bit more of like a, a contentious kind of thing, right? Um, but a lot of the times what happens is people will be on, let's say, the left or maybe more progressive, and they have an event or a series of events that kind of really is a like gut punch, right? Whether it's something with some animosity or something just kind of a, a reckoning. And they usually go not always so fast, but many times they swing all the way to the other side, right? We've all we all seen this this story play out. It plays out all the time. And now they're, you know, they're on conservative media and they're doing all the right wing talking points and you know, or they'll 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 make a dime off of it, right? I used to be a progressive lefty and now I'm, <laughs> you know, uh I've I've been red pilled and you know, all these things. Um my sense is is that that didn't quite happen for you. Um, I don't know. Maybe you are really red pilled. I don't know. But I'm. Just, <laughs> I guess I, it was just fine. But I guess my question is is like, how far I guess have you gone away from what you used to have as a as a kind of system, and what prevents you I guess from uh, extremism on uh, on the other side of things? Because there's certainly an extreme on the other. End. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely something that is common to see the kind of flip 
to the other side. So it's just, I'm just as intolerant. I'm just as dogmatic. I'm just as stubborn and rigid. But now I've just swapped out these views for another set of views, which I find that to be lacking in growth. And I think that's kind of what we like. Uh, You know, people love stories of transition and transcendence and growth and evolution because that's what our entire lives are uh the real purpose of a human life is to continue to grow in some capacity mm-hmm. if that's why you know cuba was so jarring for me in some way was because i realized like oh this is not this does not allow for growth and that's so yeah. unique to to feel what it's like to be in an environment that is prevents you from growing and um so i think that we're in a we're kind of in a weird thing here where we're getting what look like stories of transcendence stories of growth but they're more just stories of transition or swapping out mm-hmm. my team for the new team mm-hmm. and so that is a different kind of thing right that's not if if you can't really come to an audience i guess and tell them hey actually i learned these things and this has helped me in this way versus I was wrong about this policy and now I realize I prefer this policy instead. Okay. I mean, sure, we can um, assess that. But what I think is really meaningful about a story of transition from, you know, of transcendence from past views to present views is the growth that was required to, to gain that. And so for me, it was a lot more about around principles and learning to act in service of values as opposed to kind of the default things that were motivating me, which a lot of the times was just fear. And I think that for young people particularly, which I was much you know younger at that time, um, there's a lot less of a clear map for what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to navigate life. And a lot of things are up for debate and um, up for you to customize, which can place a lot of pressure on you. If suddenly so many things are up for choice and up for debate, um, that's, that's a lot of weight on a person at a time when they often don't even know what they truly want out of life yet. And so um, for me, a lot of the times I just found myself really driven by fear to adopt views that felt like they would keep me safe. So this was particularly during the time when the whole cancel culture phenomenon was uh, starting to gain steam, but no one had really put the name to it yet. It was still kind of this strange online phenomenon that just seemed to happen and we didn't quite know what was going on yet and what this means and what's really making it happen. Now, you know, there's so much uh, talk and analysis of what cancel culture is. And I think it's losing steam in some regards, depending on where you are. You know, if you have a, like, I don't feel that I'm cancelable, you know, I'm not afraid of that anymore. When I was younger, the idea of a bunch of strangers uh, ripping apart my identity and denigrating me as a terrible person online was terrifying. And I had no idea how to grapple with 
what that meant and what I should do with my fear about that. Now I understand that, well, I don't want to act out of fear. I want to act out of principle. So I'm going to speak about the things that I think are important and valuable in a way that I think is uh, in line with what I value in life, which is compassion and courage and truth and things like this, despite the fear of negative consequences. That was a paradigm shift for me. And so that is what in a way prevents me from doing that kind of like flip-flopping from one team to the next um, is that I think principles transcend that. Um, When you're acting from truth or from compassion or from courage, you might have to contradict your side today and then the next side tomorrow. And so that prevents you from becoming just like a, a new team player, which is, okay, what are the, what are the lines that I say to please this side, you know, mm-hmm. versus, oh, I used to please this side. Now I please the other side instead. Mm-hmm. Um, though I do view myself as having um, a really interesting extreme in a way um, transition, which is I used to be very authoritarian. That was my inclination in politics was, to use force, you know, state force to do things. So it's censorship. I was fine with censorship. I thought, well, why not? It's for a good reason. That's, that's enough. Now I I have a far more complex view of why it's worth bearing the the negatives of free speech um, to avoid the negatives of censorship. And so in some ways, I, my most extreme change has just been from going um, from authoritarian politics to highly freedom inclined to the point of, ah, we can kind of do away with most uh, of these systems and just have interpersonal relationships with people as opposed to trying to use like these higher up governmental systems to force other people's behavior. And that also plays out um, in personal relationships for me. That was something that really was the really cool transformative view for me was realizing how much um, my authoritarian politics played out between uh, individual people, between me and a partner, where I would think, okay, I'm not going to tell them this because that might upset them. And I'm going to, you know, maybe if I try to say this or do this instead, I can get them to do this. And, you know, like very much this kind of like game playing, emotionally manipulative approach to relationships, which now I look at it and I say, okay, I'm trying to force an outcome in this individual scenario, just like someone might try to force an outcome on a societal level by using, you know, censorship or something like that. And so, That is probably the largest shift that I've had is going from viewing force and coercion as tools that are on the table to viewing those as things that almost inevitably poison whatever efforts you're trying to obtain benevolent though they might be. I like a lot of what you said. Um, There's... One thing I want to mention, um, I, I think I think maybe you did you did say this, so I, I I want to get this in here is that I think it's good that people have uh, like a phase, right? They have a phase, especially when you're younger, right? It's I think probably that's normal. 
Well, I think it's it's somewhat normative, but I also think it's it's a good thing because you're exposing yourself to ideas. You're going to feel some emotions behind them, maybe. I mean, I certainly uh, had a socialist phase for sure. I mean, I I, I I was like, yeah, I don't I don't think I went full commie. I don't think I ever went there. I've read I've read the I've read the 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 literature. I've read the pamphlets on it, but I haven't. I never went full commie. I went. Uh, I was definitely pretty. I was social. I was a couple of years where I was. I would say probably socialist. Um, and you know, I mean, I've. Plenty of family members that are conservative, and I've—I I don't think I swung all the way right at any point, but I definitely had a, a period where, or what do they call it, heterodox thinking, or whatever. So I think mm-hmm. everybody has—I think like a, a season in a, in, a, in, a, in a period, uh, and then you kind of find sort of where you land. And and I and I agree with you on the last bit there as well. Is, um, you know, I, I think this does have personal personal implications too. You know, it's not just like oh you know, Thanksgiving dinner kinds of things. I think it's, it's, it is like, you know, kind of in your, you know, partnerships or romantic relationships, your friendships, you know, coworkers sometimes where it can be, um, you know, I think disarming to have somebody that's, that's very animated uh, in ways that are not conducive for, for dialogue in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I, I think a phase is good. I think people should go through certain phases and they go through all of them per se, but I think some pretty big ones. Um, but the other thing I was going to say was was everything you're saying. Uh, I had I had I guess some thoughts about it. So, I don't know, do you want to go deeper? As deep as you want. Oh, okay. So, um, I I think that these things give people they they give people uh systems right. They give people uh uh. It's 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 a framework. It's like a it's like a shelf for 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 organizing their 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 life, right? So if people are, I find that a lot of people in general are very much looking for ways to have their life scripted. Um, a lot of people find that through religion. I think as as we 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 navigate through the world and navigate through society, we realize that a lot of religious dogma is fucking garbage and i think we're all intelligent to know that it's pretty bullshit right i think we hold on to it for nostalgia or for family or for whatever um but most people are like yes this is ridiculous this is silly and we don't need these kinds of fundamentalist ways or even kind of more uh, nominal ways of following it. And so that's why people use the whole, like, I'm spiritual, not religious, because they mm-hmm. they just don't want to follow the rules that don't fit in with their social lives or whatever, because it is antiquated and, or they'll find, you know, all these, you know, interpretive gymnastics that they do. And, you know, I don't, I don't think any of that's really necessary, but, you know, so, or sometimes it will be the politics that people have. Right, and a lot of times, I would agree. In the probably past seven, eight years, that's definitely what's become. You know, politics is everything, unfortunately, and um, and sometimes it's other things, you know, certain causes and stuff. But I think it's because people don't want to find their own framing of things. They want to have, and I think there's, it's the fear of knowing more about yourself, knowing what you don't know, insecurities. Um, and I find the, the, I find that 
philosophically and psychologically, like this is when I when I see people do these things and they make these moves towards, you know, uh, certain kinds of outlines or structures. Whether it's like you know, I'm I'm very progressive and I'm very woke and I'm very you know, about social justice and 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 on on its merits, those things aren't bad. I think I think that there are some things that are great about that, right? Equality, you know, having good rights for people, et cetera. And I think it just gets turned up to eleven. I think the reactionary thing of being anti-woke, I think there's some really good uh, uh, criticisms, for sure. Absolutely. I think there's some good criticisms, um, and we need that. But then it just gets all the way to another level, et cetera, et cetera. But I can't understand why people can't make their own kind of framing for things. It needs to be in one of these categories. It has to be. And my theory is that it's because people are very afraid. You know, I mean, this is like what, what you know, what Nietzsche said about like, you know, when with the death of God and that we killed him. It's, you know, it's a, we have the shadow of, of God always around us, the shadow of religion that's there. And honestly, I mean, he was worried about that because of, you know, what, what happens with a society that doesn't have a system, right? And I think that was his whole kind of thing. It was like, how do we have a revaluation of all values where it's not that there's a universality to it per se, people can disagree with that, but it's more of how do you have your values that is commiserate with others in, in society and life, but then also how you have this, this, this reaching for uh, a way to live life very fully, very honestly and authentically. And it's just, it, there are going, it's it's not that you don't have a system, you don't have a framework, it's that you make the framework. But that takes a lot of hard work, a lot of introspection, that has to, you have to challenge your fears and your insecurities where you're wrong. And I just feel like people don't really want to do that. Um, Some might say that people cannot. There are some arguments maybe, out there that maybe, yeah. some people simply like, and I don't know where I ex I actually fall on that because I would like to think that every person has the capacity to fully define a functional worldview for themselves without needing to be um, given something exactly. But, <laughs> you know, we're in a, in a way, this may be a huge ask, which is maybe you come up with a coherent worldview that's constructive on your own um you know that used to be the task of your entire civilization and mm -hmm. and you know generations and generations would collaborate on what that culture's worldview was going to be that religion whatever it was that yeah. was the defining framework for that civilization it was a collaborative collective effort over long amounts of time and now we're in this moment where it very much feels like it is an individual effort that happens over your lifespan mm -hmm. you define the worldview for yourself over the course of your own life and so it's kind of like a pendulum swing. It's almost the exact opposite of where we once got these frameworks for how we navigate the world. I think it helps to know that that's your task. That's the other thing that was a major eye-opener for me was that, oh, I have to evaluate these things. I have to evaluate 
what principles I'm going to act on, what ideas I'm going to accept. I have to look at how they actually will function in my life and my world instead of doing what perhaps many people do and what I did when I was younger, which was kind of just does this feel good in a way that makes me feel safe, like more ego safe rather? So it was just like, you know, that kind of needing to stick to a point in a rigid way, getting defensive if anyone would question my views or contradict them and feeling very tied to whatever my worldviews were because I didn't have that, that framework of, oh, I'm in a process of continually building this worldview. So having challenges to it are good because that helps me to find the weak spots that I can then rebuild with something better. When you have that limited look on the world, which is the view I have now is the view I have now. And I can't tolerate it being challenged because then what would I have? You know, this is the only view I have. When you have that more uh, open mindset of, oh, okay, I'm actually building this thing as I go. So it being challenged, me having to change parts of it, that is the process. If you don't have that outlook towards what a viewpoint is, if you just have your views, then when they get challenged, the normal reaction is to be defensive and to resist that. So I don't think we've, we haven't really done um, this as a culture, as a society, really communicate that it's it's on you now. It's on you now to decide what your worldview is and to, you know, take as much effort as you want to apply to that process. And you're ultimately the one that's going to receive the benefits or the consequences of it. I mean, whatever other people do receive the benefits and the consequences too of your uh, positive or negative worldview. Um, but I think that um, it, it it's definitely another kind of framework shift, which is going from fixed worldview to um, to constantly changing worldview. And I do think that politics has just kind of filled the gap where we are now. So politi- I, uh, religion was once the worldview, the collective view that we shared. Politics has kind of filled that void, um, which I believe was something that Jung warned about. There's this wonderful quote from Jung where he talks about how as religion falls, then the state and political leaders will kind of be the next in line to become deified and to be viewed with the kind of religious fervor that we see often in the political space. And so it ends up being counterproductive, of course, because that's not ideal. You, you know, shouldn't bring religious fervor to politics because it's more of a process of compromise, really. It, it should be that way if you're just working with different ideas and looking at, okay, why does this idea work? Why does this idea not work? Let's see what we have our different perspectives here. But we don't do that. It's highly emotional because it has that, um, that intensity of what a belief system does. So I don't think that that is the most productive place for us as a culture, as a society. Um, And I do think that part of getting past that is, I don't even know really how realistic this is once again, but at least I did it so some can. Um, 
you have to become comfortable with being undefined in your political views and just kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. that was a big thing for me was Mm -hmm. I have a little bit more of a defined political view now because I've actually started to learn more and found like, Oh, there's actually other people that had the similar uh, questions and feelings and criticisms that I have now. And they wrote about it. Okay. And I kind of discover that and I can go deeper into it, but there was a long time where I was just like, I know that that doesn't work. And I know that this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And all I can do is kind of go issue by issue and and not, you know, raise my flag with any one side. And to be honest, there was a time where I didn't want to. I just Mm -hmm. straight up was like, I don't want a damn flag. Like, I don't want to have to be in any team. I enjoy, I kind of like reveled in um, having an undefined position. Because that's exactly what there's so much pressure on people to have now, especially if you're in the public sphere in any way or commenting on things in the public sphere. People want to know right away, well, what are you arguing for? What side is this? What what perspective? What philosophy? It's like, it's mine. That's Mm -hmm. what it is. It's Mm -hmm. me in this moment right now thinking about the thing. You know, I don't have to be a representative for some organization or for for some other side or for some, you know, philosophy. I can just be an individual human thinking about a thing in this moment. And then you know what? Tomorrow, I may think I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And this is the other very weird thing that social media does to people and is a huge part of why politics has become so polluted with this kind of religious fervor, but also this kind of um, pressure to be a representative of your collective mm-hmm. is that we look at, so I tweet something yesterday, right? I'll tweet some, some thing yesterday. Today, I may be like, you know what? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I really agreed with that. I may change. And I tweet things all the time that I'm like, I can see how in five years I may not mm-hmm. be totally on board with this. But in the moment, I do agree with it and I do enjoy tweeting it and I do feel aligned with it. And I mean, isn't that the actual human experience of growth? It's mm-hmm. to act on what you believe in the moment, you know, with reflection, with, you know, awareness and to act upon that and then to know, well, I do feel this now, but there is a chance that I will change how I feel in the future. And just keeping that in mind, because I think that that lends a kind of humility to the way that you engage with things going on in the world that allows you to temper the way you respond and react to things, because you know, there's a chance that I may not hold this view forever. So let me be a little more charitable with how I interact with what I currently oppose. I totally agree with what you're saying. And as as I'm listening to you, I'm trying to think, what is it about people that A, can't admit this, and B, even if they did, don't want to do that? And I keep coming back to this thing of of people typically, I think in generally, as kind of a starting line, don't want to feel unsure. They don't want to feel unsure of things. And I think a lot of times people put a lot of their feelings into their values, which is maybe fair momentarily. But I don't think to the extent where we become emotionally um, um, uh, stubborn about how where everyone knows, like, you know that this isn't right, 
and you're still choosing to believe it because you just don't want to let it fucking go. You don't want to be wrong. And like that, 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 that's saying so much more than what it is. And, and if, and if somebody, when I, when I, when people are, I don't know, I, I, I have a big question mark, um, or I have a, you know, a raised eyebrow or an observation when, when somebody is so rigidly believing something, right? Especially if they're older than me. <laughs> if you're 20 years old, fine. I'll give you a pass. That's okay, right? <laughs> but if you're in your 40s, because right? I'm in my late 30s, if you're in your 40s or older and you're still acting that way, right? In some ways, this kind of maybe goes back to the maturity thing. Like you can have strong opinions and value systems, but, but, I don't know, because the thing for me is whether you want that or not, that's how life is, right? There are some constants, maybe. Maybe there's some universals. But even when you go down to like quantum mechanics, right? Nothing's the same. Everything's always moving. It's always in motion. I mean, how could ideas be so static? I mean, some some things, yes, but but I think there's so many things we we don't know. Or it could change, or we could improve, and and also, so there's there's that component, but then there's the second piece of it, which is this idea of telling people what to think and telling them what to believe and telling them. I really, mm-hmm. I, I I understand people want the shortcut so they don't have to do that. So I can get one aspect of that right. But I don't understand how people on another framework are okay with that. So, for example, you can obviously the very easy kind of low hanging fruit on this is religious people, right? And they're they're backed by the deity of whichever god you want to put there, and whichever you know, uh, eternal burning or hell or whatever torture, whatever whatever the 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 incentives are to 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 believe in this or not or whatever. I mean, I I I, I get all that. But sometimes if people aren't doing something religious, I mean, one of the things I find so deeply troubling to me is so many people ask, tell me what to do. Tell me what to believe. Tell me what to, I can't understand that. Uh, mm. You know, I, I have a, I have a kind of unwritten rule that, you know, I don't, I don't name names on, on my podcast. I don't like, I don't like, uh, you know, being directly, uh, you know, kind of shitty or whatever. Drama. I don't like doing that only because I just <laughs> think it's, it kind of just feels like, you know, gossipy and, and yeah. bad taste. But <laughs> I mean, there, there are plenty of very famous people that have podcasts that write books that have videos and so on and so forth that are in this like guru self-help woo woo. And I, and I, and I don't understand why that's so attractive and appealing to people to say this person sure maybe they have a phd or maybe they have an md or maybe they have a whatever fine but they're going to listen to someone that confirms whatever their bayesian priors are whatever makes them feel great and then they just they just they just go all the way with it and i mm-hmm. i don't understand why you would believe someone that's telling you what to think and believe. I don't understand. Like this person could have a lot of really cool ideas or a lot of, and that's great. You can interact with it, but every single person is fallible. Every single person 
makes mistakes. And if they can't do that, if they can't say, I was wrong, I got this wrong on a regular basis, and they don't have enough epistemic humility, that is not somebody I want to listen to on a regular basis. That is somebody that is, you know, kind of like warning, go, you know, run the other way. And I see this over and over and over. There are plenty of people that spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours during 2020 and during 21 and 2022. Going on and on and on about asking questions out loud about COVID and the vaccines and all these things. And it's obvious these are bad faith people, even if they, and again, even if they believe what they're saying, which I don't entirely think they do. How could you be so fucking confident with a novel virus as it's happening? And why would anybody continuously listen to like 87 hours of that over and over and over? Okay. Or, or, or you can take it on the other side when people go on and on and on and on and on and on about one way about how to view race or white supremacy mm-hmm. or certain things. And it's just, or, or gender or whatever the hot cultural moment thing is. I just don't understand why people choose to listen to the same bullshit over and over with no critiques, no, no thought for anything else. I, I don't understand it sometimes. And it, it's, it's very frustrating because at the end of the day, I just, if somebody would ask me, and, and, and sometimes people do this, you know, professionally or personally, what do you think I should do? No, that's the wrong fucking question. Don't ask yeah. me what you should do. Let's talk about what you're thinking about doing and why and what are some of these other ideas if if i'm i i can tell you look i'll I'll tell you what i would do and then as soon as i tell you you're gonna oh that's not how i would do it no (laughs) shit because you're a different person there's no manual there's no heuristic there's no steps one two and three and I think when people are like, well, people need that because they just need something that's digestible and something that's easy to take. I, I don't, I think there's a way in which you can communicate things in a way that's understandable for sure. But giving somebody something spoon fed as if it's some fucking oracle from on high doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think what that's doing is, aside from the person that's doing that, their narcissism, I think what that's doing is this, that's taking the thinking from the person they're, that they're speaking to, it's taking the responsibility away. It's taking their ability to, to find that and flourish. And so, so anyways, so all that to say, all my rambling here, what, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you think about this? I think a lot. So Go ahead, tell me. yes, the, the cult leader figure takes the opportunity for the follower to independently analyze something and form their own view of it but at the same time the follower gives them that power right so what we found is a, a symbiotic relationship essentially and it doesn't actually so i love how frustrated you are by it because on the one hand i'm like yes i completely agree because i'm the kind of person in that similar to you that really really values my capacity to think things through on my own and to make my judgments on something on my own. But at the same time, part of me is like, well, I can't be surprised at this at all because this is actually the more common and ancient human dynamic is 
vast swaths of people who look to singular individuals that claim to have um, a monopoly on reality. And they simply accept that and go about their lives. And so you made the example of religion, which would be um, the most common example prior to what might be the example now, which is kind of political commentary pundits, um, people like that, as you call them, gurus. And so, but it's very much the same dynamic. And so we've we've removed the religion factor there. So we can say, oh, well, you know, you gave them the benefit of the doubt of, okay, well, they're scared of, you know, hell and brimstone. Well, maybe that's not actually what's driving them to put themselves into these unquestioning follower positions. Because if we remove that, which we have now, we get the same behavior. So we still have people that are absolutely willing to give up their critical thinking abilities, their individual freedom to deliberate and decide on things to people that claim to have the, the monopoly on uh, a truth about something. And so, but there's not the hell and brimstone um, threat in that scenario, but we still have the same behavior. So then it must be something else that's driving that. And what could be this, the same thing in the the previous time um, that is still happening now? And it is some kind of fear. In the most general sense, it's fear, right? So fear that I don't follow the prophet's commandments. Okay, yes, you, you'll have a bad outcome. Fear of that. Fear that I will be on the wrong side of some issue and not have the future that I want, fear that some bad thing is going to happen, that if we don't do this, as this pundit says, that our own version of hell and brimstone is going to occur, which is like, okay, if it is it going to be, you know, civilizational collapse or um, some new, you know, catastrophe in the future. So it seems like it's the same thing. It's fear and this desire to be rid of uncertainty and to be told here with certainty, I've figured it out. So but, really but, the question, yeah, go on. So I was going to say, yes, I think a way you could organize this is there are external and internal forces that are motivated by fear, right? So everything you're saying, yes, the external forces are, you know, the, the, the fire and brimstone, the, you know, the world's going to end, or th this is, this is going to be, you know, uh, the most important election we've ever had ever <laughs> in our, you know, all that shit. Right. Okay, fine. But I also think there is an, an, uh, an internal fact force of people, people love their ideas and when they love their ideas and they get attached to them, they don't want to give them up because that means they were wrong or they got it mm -hmm. wrong. And we have really disincentivized that, right? That making being wrong is seen as weak or um, you know dumb or whatever it is. I think more than that is it being wrong, but it's also well, you get kicked off the island, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the internal thing, but then there's the pressure of like the social component of well, you know, if if I don't believe in the patriarchy, then I'm not liberal enough right? Then I'm not considered, I'm something else, but I'm not that, right? Or, you know, if I don't believe in, um, you know, the second amendment and, and lower taxes, then I'm not conservative enough, 
right? So there's, I think people internally feel those pressures of, okay, well, then I'm tribalist, if you will. And some people might like that. And, you know, some people have criticized that, like, well, not having a tribe is its own tribe or whatever, right? Like, that's whatever, that's fine. But I guess the point is, is that I think people, there's a fear from the external threats and the fear from the internal threats as well that that people have on this 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 notion of not wanting to do it because like once you love an idea, people don't want to get rid of it, right? I mean people people don't people don't want to get rid of that, and I think it it depends on like how it started or or instantiated. Like I don't usually talk about this stuff, but it's a good example. I mean everybody loved the idea. Well, not I shouldn't say. There was a handful of people that loved the idea of like wearing a mask. They felt protected mm-hmm. during the pandemic. They felt protected. It was, you know, doing something good for somebody else. You know, it's just catching droplets. So, you know, whatever, if you had a, a cough mm-hmm. or whatever. And at no point is there like some like elixir in a mask that helps save people or something like that, right? It was a preventative measure during the height of a very widespread pandemic. And it was a way to prevent that from happening. And everybody should have followed that. I mean, I wore them. I did it. I did what I was told, whatever, whatever. That's fine. But I can remember whenever all these places started saying, like, lifting the mask mandate, you don't have to wear it anymore. And then you could do all these things and all that stuff. And I, it's totally normal that people were getting sick. And they were dying pre-vaccine. And it was really terrible. And it was awful. And too many millions of people died. We made a lot of big mistakes, et cetera. Fine. But people... Still, some people today, right, <laughs> three plus years later, go out and they wear masks outside when they're walking around in public, walking their dog. I, said, I mean, and that's fine. People have their own opinion and they can have their own way of doing things. But I, I, I just find that sometimes um, people don't want to let that go. They don't want to let it go because it, they made them feel safe. They felt secure. They felt protected. But they just assign all of this weight behind it, and it mm-hmm. it doesn't it's not necessary anymore. It doesn't it doesn't work that way anymore. And there's plenty of examples of this on the other side of things as well. You know, you could probably make this the, the reverse argument. I'm not going to wear this to show that you know I actually know this, and you know this doesn't work. Or I'm going to take ivermectin just to say fuck you, so I don't have to do a vaccine because I know it works. And you know what and Again, there is uses for that. There is uses for some of these other medications, but you know, all these but people don't want to let that go because then they're mm-hmm. I'm wrong. And then I said all this stuff and I'm a flip-flopper now, or oh, I just, you know, I got uh, you know, kind of brainwashed by the other side or things like that. So I, there's this mm-hmm. idea, right? That like once somebody has an idea and they love it, then it's hard to let go. To which my answer would be. Don't love your ideas too hard. That would be mm-hmm. my thing, right? Because if you love it too hard and you got to let it go or you got to let some of it go, it's going to be a lot harder for you. And in the end, you're just going to look like the foolish person, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's the danger of identifying with yeah. ideas too closely, uh, which is, I think, part of why I had this instinct to not do that once I really rejected identifying with a political ideology. It's like I enjoyed having that kind of formless uh, political identity where it's it's not one thing or the other because it actually allows you a lot of freedom. 
you know, it's, it's a freedom that you, you lose when you identify too heavily with any one ideology or viewpoint, because then when you have to confront a challenge to that, you have a huge vested interest to immediately dismiss it so that you can remain uh, a good whatever the group is that you are included in. And one of the things that you're touching on with this also, as we talk about like the desire to give up your ability to think you know, independently on something so that someone else can just tell you what to think, it seems also like there's a group membership aspect to this, which is when, you know, the the problem, if you'll put it as a problem with having the kind of undefined politics that I had was that I had no group, you know, and, and I guess some people will call that the politically homeless thing, which speaks to the sense that people do perceive that feeling of, oh, I lack a group to call myself a part of. And that's such an ancient human desire that it may very very well play out in so many ways that we're not really even aware of. Politics probably being one of the most obvious ones today is that, well, I have this vested interest to agree with these things and to attack any disagreements with it because if I don't, do I get kicked out of the group? Do I lose the ability to identify with this thing that is larger than myself? And that may be one of the things that we have most overlooked as an important part of an individual human's existence is the sense that you are part of something bigger than yourself, which historically was your culture, your civilization, whatever, you know, you'd, we'd have all these rituals that kind of place people as individuals in collective situations that really demonstrated to them that they are a part of this larger thing. And um, we don't have a lot of that now. I mean, you might, the one of the best examples of it is probably sports, which is fine, but I don't know how deep that goes to, you know, on the everyday level, if people walk around thinking, well, you know, I don't know about where our society is going, but I do know what my team is doing. You know, I don't know how much that serves people. Mm -hmm. Um, But that desire to be part of something larger than oneself is probably really at play in our um, motivation to not contradict the ideas that we've decided are ours. And I don't know, for me, yeah, like being willing to just not, not get too attached to one label or whatever it is, gives me a lot of freedom. Yeah. So I, I, I'll push back on this a little bit here. I, I think that I'm going to use a, a a political talking point, so forgive me, but (laughs) I think that I'll I'll just say on the on the on the the liberal side of things. I think we need to have a big tent for lots of different and people talk about this big tent, this coalition, this big tent with different kinds of varieties and stuff. Um yeah, I mean I, I certainly I certainly feel what you feel, right? This I want this freedom that like if I don't if I don't agree with everything about what this side says about climate change, I don't want to get booted out, kind of thing, or mm-hmm. whatever, fill in the blank. I totally am sympathetic for that. What I would say is, is more than like, how can you, I guess it depends on like what kind of freedom you want. 
So, for example, you know, I think of it like if you if you were to draw if you were to draw a box, right? And it's a very big box. And you say, okay, here's your frame. Now go as 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 nuts as you want within that frame, right? And then you draw a smaller box. And you say, okay, you can do whatever you want, but the box is much smaller. That's sort of how I kind of see parties or or political sides or whatever, things like that. And for me, you know, again, unless you just – I just don't think people are that kind of amorphous. There are things that people really like. I'm sure, you know, you value – uh, freedom, maybe you value humanity or humanist ideals, maybe you, you value free speech or free thinking, things like that. Those are types of values or ideas, right? And I don't think one party has or whatever has a monopoly on those things, but I think that sometimes you can be somewhat close, not everybody, but somewhat close to one or the other. And I think you can have, you should have a wide continuum of that. Um, one of the things I've I've thought about or played around with is recently is, you know, instead of kind of saying that is saying like, no, 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 instead of not having a party or whatever aside, I want to understand the fundamentals, let's say, of of uh, the left or liberalism, let's say, and and saying like, yeah, I I I don't agree with all of this, but I agree with most of it. Or agree of enough of it, right? So I usually tell people I'm a moderate. I'm a moderate liberal, um, which just means I piss off everybody. But I think that it it what, what, I what, one of the things I've told people I've told this on all sides of the spectrum politically and maybe philosophically is. So I'll tell this with people like progressives on the left. Hey, listen, you care about climate change, right? And I do too. It's it's I mean top ten issue for me, for sure. It's not my number one issue. It's not my number two or three issue, but it's maybe it's, I don't know, six, seven or something like that. And what I've told people is you care about this at an 11. And that's great. I'm very happy you do. Sincerely. I care about this at a six. We both care about this issue. The issue is important to us. I don't have to care about it as much as you do. And we can still be on the same side, quote unquote. Further, I also want to have the amount of space I put on things in my head. I don't want to only think about two issues all the fucking time. World's a big place, a lot of different people. I want to think and know and experience so many different things. I don't want to just talk about race and gender all the fucking time. They're important issues that get absolutely beaten over and over and over and over and over that it's boring. And I don't like being somewhat apathetic about it at this point, but that's just kind of what society does now, right? And it's just like, yes, I care about these things, but I do not care about it to quit my job and start a sub stack and just write about this all day, right? You know, and I also think that there's there are maybe in my mind things that are bigger. So when I think about that big tent, it's like, yeah, I mean, I I... I have, I have, I think people have thoughts strongly or otherwise about most of the things that happen and most of the issues in life. But I think a lot of people, my hypothesis is that most people care about kind of the same things because those things are human related. And most people 
I posit are pretty moderate. I think that's just that's just my that's just my kind of starting line of this. Like every election, right? It's the same thing. Jobs and economy, healthcare, education, and you know, maybe depending on the year, you know, 16 it was immigration. Last year it was, you know, abortion and and, and uh, a woman choosing. Okay, so sometimes there's other things that make it on there and they get bumped up or depending on what's going on in the world or whatever. Okay, fine. But for the most part, it's just the same thing. And those things are what? Can I have my basic needs met in the way that I want that I can take care of myself and my family? You don't have to do anything about race, gender, climate change, gun rights or gun laws or whatever. Those things are not, not important. They are. But not everyone's going to be going to a rally and a march and all day spewing venom at other people and arguing about CRT and banning curriculums or books or whatever, whatever it is, right? And I, I, for me, it's like, why can't we have people that are more moderate? Why can't we have people where it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. I just don't care at the same level you do. And we can still say that that person has liberal values. I mean, you could do this on the right too. I think people do this. Like, yeah, you got crazies on the right. You got crazies on the left. You know, people that care about this thing in a really weird, extreme way. But then you have people that don't. And that's fine. And on both sides, it's the same thing. And that's, but when you hear that, right? When you hear that politically, it's like everyone's like, they all suck. I don't like any of them. It's like, well, how much are we going to say that? We're still voting for some of these people that are whatever. And why are we not? platforming a little bit more you know maybe they're boring issues maybe people don't want to get into the ins and outs of gerrymandering in whatever district but like i mean if that's what normie's like why are we not mainstreaming that instead of like something that is is for like a small percentage of people and everyone acts like it's you know a widespread whatever whatever so what do you what do you i guess think about this like kind of wider thing where it's like yes you could be politically homeless i guess that's fine um, or you could still fit in one of these, uh, kind of big, big teams, if you will, but we just brought in the frame. We brought in the tent. We have more people along that kind of continuum. I mean, what, what do you think? Yeah. Well, the first question that comes to my mind is what's the obstacle to doing that? Because the obstacle to doing that is likely going to point you to what the vested interest is in preventing that. Because mm -hmm. that's actually a very free society is yep. if you can have people that have different viewpoints along a spectrum and they all still recognize that um, each of them pursuing their interest to the degree that they're interested in them under that like larger umbrella of like, OK, we know that these are all our interests and they're all in service of what we value. So okay, you can pursue, you really into animal rights? Great. Like make that your thing. Mm -hmm. You're really into um, whatever immigration law or something like, okay, great. Mm -hmm. Get into the weeds on that. Mm -hmm. You know, as opposed to kind of what you see now, which is if you don't care about this in this, in this capacity, it's a moral failure. Right. And right. Right. that's a guilt tactic, essentially, because if you're telling someone that they're a moral failure, you are telling them that they are bad and essentially in some ways that they are a threat to you and potentially others. Mm. And so it makes me ask, well, why can't we do that? Where does this impetus to push everybody to care about a certain set of things in a certain level of ex like intensity, 
where is that coming from? And to me, that's kind of a manipulative tactic that makes me suspicious of who benefits from that kind of um, lack of tolerance of people having you know, their interests and not being as extreme about the same exact things as you are. Because I know that I'm not like that. I actually don't really care if people are super into the things that I'm not into, but I'm into them. So I'd like to talk about them and, you know, and spend my time doing that. Um, but then there is this kind of mode of thinking that views people not taking up certain issues with the same intensity as they are as a threat because it's, well, this is the most important thing. I've decided that this is the most important thing. So if you are not recognizing that, you're an obstacle to me making this the most important thing for everybody. And that's where I view this with a suspicious lens. And I think it is a negative thing. I think we should recognize that it's kind of like if you bring it to a, a lower level, right? There are people that want to start businesses. Um, to make like the bags that you send store products home like you go shopping and you buy a you buy something and they put it in a bag there's someone whose whole shit is designing that bag to be as awesome as possible like that's the thing that those bags don't come out of nowhere but we don't even think about them i couldn't give a shit what my products come home in but there's someone that's really into yeah. the yeah, design yeah. of bags yeah. and so is that a threat to me that this person's really hyper-focused on something that I really don't care about? No, it's actually quite natural that people are able to uh, fulfill what they're interested in in that capacity because, wow, that actually just helps me. So the person that's really into animal rights or really into, um, you know, police reform or whatever, great, good. I can't do all of those things because I'm doing my things. So we need people that are interested in the things that they're interested in. The problem with that comes is where it's kind of like this zero sum game where it's not a process of collaboration or cooperation. It's not a process of discussion of, well, I, these, I have these ideas for how this could be improved and you have these ideas for how this could be improved. So let's see what has the more information, what does the less harm, you know, comparing principles. It's not, it's all a moral battle. And, you know, all these things end up succumbing to the same problems, which is like the same things that you see in moral battles throughout history, where it's not about cooperation or collaboration or like a process of iteration where you just kind of, okay, let's, let's just keep working on this and like small improvements. No, it's a battle. It's a war. It needs to be won today. There are lives on the line, you know, like you're doing harm, like all this rhetoric that is extremely intense and is designed to evoke this kind of cataclysmic environment around every single issue that it's used for yeah i i mean i i don't want to get started on it on my end because i'll get super worked up but i i absolutely <laughs> i absolutely detest this whole it's a war it's a battle yeah. this fight i hate that language so much i i get so like <laughs> triggered by it it <laughs> pisses me off to no end um because it's not that and I, I think if we're hyper-moralizing everything I, or hyper-emoting uh, everything, I just don't think that that's helpful. You can still have your morals and your feelings about it, um, 
but but injecting that with like you know mm. times you know 12 it's just not helpful and not accurate and it's cheap it's it's playing on people's emotions their fear it's manipulative blah, blah, blah. it is it is manipulative whether they realize it or not and and, and a lot of people i think do recognize this so i i, I totally agree and the, that's um, the social media aspect of this yeah. too, like briefly, is that now more than ever, you know, you talk about this small group of like the subset of a population that really is into making everything seem like, no, this is do or die. Like this is the biggest thing. And somehow that that small subset is the one that gets pandered to by the people who otherwise right. perhaps would be, you know, better off pandering to the majority of people that are more reasonable. So why are we dialing up the rhetoric and being so extreme just to uh, converse with people who are not representative of the majority of people who actually are, you know, put off by that kind of intensity and like hyper fixation on issues when they're like, well, I just want to make sure I can pay my bills. Like, why are you mm -hmm. freaking out about like spaying cats or something? And, but um, that's right. what social media rewards. And, right. And and again, it's, it's just like what you said. It's not that you can't care about that or that can't be your thing or that we shouldn't give it time and energy, but not everything needs to scale up where it's, if it's scaling up for the big, big, big ticket items, uh, and it's taken a lot of energy and space from those things. Then, then that's where it becomes frustrating because then it's because then because then the content of these things is like you know a battle and a war and all that stuff is like mm. you're not convincing somebody else of your opinions because you have the the most extreme. So, like, what's your point here? Like, is your point to just like keep getting your Patreon filled and like good for you, whatever? But like. Or is it actually to have a constructive discussion? And I just find that like people feel like they're doing, you know, the work on things. And a lot of the times it's not that. It's it's not that. And and that 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 becomes very normally I wouldn't give a shit about that, right? But the fact that like the most extreme groups are the smallest numbers, but they're given the biggest megaphone is really frustrating. It's very, very frustrating because really, really important issues that are kind of like your meat and potato issues mm -hmm. that most people care about get sidelined. And that's very problematic in a lot of ways. And uh, those issues that are getting highlighted tend to be the most immovable ones. Yeah, right, you right. Know, it's exactly, like the exactly. abortion ones and the things like that. It's like you're talking about issues that have never, you're not going right, to, yeah. you're very unlikely to find a, let's meet in the middle. You know, like those yeah. are really and hard issues. And that's fine. Not everything needs to be like, middle line but i i guess it just it's like yeah well what's what's you can have your positions and be respectful for other people with their positions but like what, what's what's the what's the aim here i'm, I'm not too sure um yeah that, that's that, a good that, point that becomes very very frustrating so i have this i have i, I have one other other topic i i want to respect your time so you know you can go as long with this as you want so um <laughs> It's sort of connected to what we were saying. So I've had various conversations with people kind of, uh, you know, personally and, and in other contexts. Um, so my uh, friend Angel Eduardo has talked about this a little bit. Uh, my friend Michael Callahan has his own podcast. Where we go next is great. Everyone should listen to it. Um, we've talked about uh, this a little bit. Uh, and other people, I've talked about it with other people as well, is, is this idea that we we get a thing right we get a new concept right and and we don't create new words for the new concept right 
And so we use older words for things or existing words, and we just repurpose them. So basically, people are working on one idea that they have for a long time about something. And then it kind of, that idea, that concept moves somewhere. And then we kind of use the same words, but it has a different meaning. And people are like, no, no, I mean this. And no, 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 I mean this. And then then you're having somebody talk about things in different ways, right? So we can't we can't articulate a new thing. And it said it looks like we're against the old thing, right? So let me let me let me frame this. I think one thing about this, there was a kind of, I don't want to say viral moment, but there was a moment there where I can't tell you how many times I've seen this stupid fucking picture about the two kids on the boxes and they're talking about equality oh, yeah. and equity. I've seen this so many fucking times, right? It's so obnoxious, right? How people weaponize that. Um, and I think a lot of the times, so folks on the right get triggered when they hear, like, if you say equity, they're triggered, like they're foaming at the mouth, triggered. Right? And I mean, I can get some of the objections, I guess, but, and, and a lot of the times people that are saying that they're, when you ask them, well, what do you mean by, by equity? They just describe equality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not they're not described. And a lot of the times people don't know the differences, right? And I think if they did know the difference, maybe they would say, well, I do mean equity. Fine. But a lot of the times people don't. There was this moment where somebody asked, uh, I don't know where what the forum was, but somebody asked Bernie Sanders about equity, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. What do you think about equity? Yeah. And then they they basically defined the terms equality and equity separately and how they're different. And he literally said, Mr. Democratic Socialist literally said, no, 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 I mean equality. I don't, want to, I don't want everybody to have the same outcome. That's not what I'm saying. That we all have the same you know, ability to do that in terms of like that we have the accessibility or that we're able to do that, that you're not prevented by you know, all of the particulars, right? You know, your race, your gender, et cetera, et cetera, that you can go and get a job and get paid well for like equality, right? Like, and it's like, yeah, you know, but the equity is like that everyone gets to the same t- same same uh same end zone outcome yeah and he was just like no that's not what i'm about and like that happens all the time that happens with like i feel like diversity equity inclusion stuff while there's like obviously i think it comes from a good place when people like see like oh another company's doing this honestly it just (laughs) feels like this is the 2023 version of like 2012's version of like cultural sensitivity or multiculturalism or whatever it was 10 years ago. Like that's all, like that's how people conceptualize it. Oh, this is just a new thing we call it, mm-hmm. but it's it's really just this. And other people are like, "Oh my god, this is Marxist smuggling into our current everyday." And it's like it's 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 not know, that. Yeah. That's not what it is. People are just going along to get along. But of course, right? I mean, I've pissed off everybody at this point, right? So people on the right and the left, they get <laughs> upset at me. People say I'm I'm being dismissive or I don't really know or you're not, you know, for the cause. And I mean, everyone gets mad at me about this, but I don't know. What do, what do you think about this concept or what are your ideas? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that equity is a perfect example of a word that a lot of people use without knowing what it implies. Um, I think it's, I think that's why it can be so pernicious at the same time, because anytime you use language, um, inaccurately, and particularly when you're using that language towards the goal of doing something and something that may include other people, um, <laughs> that's, that starts to become tricky. 
And um, I, I kind of have the sense, though, I kind of realize like, oh, I think a lot of people just think that equity means equality. And so they're painted as these kind of like hardline Marxists, right? That it's like, oh, they're trying to put us in camps or something. And it's right. like they're literally just thinks that they're supporting the civil rights movement. Like they right. don't right, right. know. And so, you know, th that's that's really kind of the beauty of having a, a slight pause before you immediately react to things mm -hmm. because you might be able to clarify something for someone without immediately jumping down their throat to punish them for what you think that they're up to when really that's not actually what they're up to. And clarity is something that is, you know, conspicuously absent from a lot of the discourse now. People are more so reacting to the phantoms of what they think are there, you know, so you see like, oh, this company has uh, put out a, a diversity, equity or inclusion statement. It's like, OK, is it the end of civilization or is it a company that doesn't actually know and there's like a well-meaning person that's like oh well i think that this is you know what how we do equality now <laughs> it's like you mm -hmm. know they mm -hmm. don't know so i mean seeking clarity is really a powerful thing to do in those instances when you can do that because like anything, having more information before you make a move means that the move you make will be more impactful and accurate. And for the people that love the language of war and battles, well, the thing that you aim to do in a battle is to gain as much understanding of the battlefield as possible. Mm -hmm. So if you rush out because you think you saw a cannon over there go off, but it's not, you may lose the battle. Mm -hmm. So, but then, you know, it's, it's again, like a question of motives, motives. What are we really trying to do? Are you really trying to solve a problem? Because if so, then one of the first things you're going to do is seek clarity. Mm -hmm. And one of the rules that I have for engagement in my life, uh, particularly on social media is, is this person seeking clarity with their inquiries? Or does this person just want to dump their reaction on me? Because if someone has issues with a point that I make, it's pretty easy for me to tell whether they're genuinely trying to find out some kind of understanding and say like, well, hey, you're saying this, but I think this about that. And how do you square it? Okay, great. I'm, mm -hmm. I love that because then I can hone my position and we can do that whole process of like, okay, let's see where we meet. Where's the overlap? Where's the disconnect? But if it's a thing where someone's coming to me with already their you know assumptions about what I mean, and they're already placing the reaction without taking any effort to kind of understand what I might have meant, what they are just assuming that I mean, that's something that's an interaction that I for most times, I just don't even have it, period, because there's too many interactions to have in the world. I don't need to mm -hmm. fill up my time having interactions with people that are not seeking to understand things. And, you know, that's a lot of where we are, where we are in our culture right now is there's when you have that kind of urgency, that kind of like battlefield rhetoric, that sense that everything is a moral battle and that the like highest stakes are on the line you don't seek understanding, you know, and, and that's kind of what you spoke to with this, um, this issue where people kind of just go to their side and they're making points that might resonate with their side, but they're not actually, you know, um, seeking to 
engage with anyone else except like, are you on my side or not? That's it. People like that are taking a strategy that is all is applied in war, but it's the kind of like, we're on the last leg of this. Like there's no room for negotiations. Mm -hmm. There's no attempts to try to, you know, a resolve conflict that is the last resort type of strategy which is there is no chance for conflict resolution or like for clarifying um points and and you know meeting at the middle in some regard so we just have to go as hard as possible doing what we know is right period mm -hmm. and so i mean you know you kind of get you get the environment that we have from that which is like very rigid, very embattled, um, and very reactive and emotional. It's not something that works in people's lives. If you take that approach in your interpersonal relationships, on the problems you work on in your career or in your day-to-day -day life, you will likely fail because that is such a stubborn, um, emotionally reactive way to go about life that it makes it really hard to make accurate decisions. Like you're kind of just doing the berserker strategy, mm -hmm. but like towards ideas and politics, which is again, if there's no other option, that's it. The city's on fire. Yeah. Okay. Berserker strategy is going to apply, but the city's not on fire. And if you act like the city is on fire before it is, mm -hmm. you tend to take actions that end up bringing about the very circumstances that you thought that you were reacting to prevent. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with everything you said. And honestly, when I travel the world and when I talk to people all from all over the world and on the podcast or people I know in my personal life, all this stuff feels like super not important or like it's like it's like arguments privileged people have to make because they don't have to worry about real things in the world. And I know that I'm not saying that those issues like, you know, issues of you know racism or or uh, gender inequality or things like that aren't. I, they are important, but the way we're talking about it and how we're doing that is not kind of what you're saying. Not someone trying to find clarity and results. They're just trying to win an argument, and that's bullshit, mm -hmm. right? I don't think that that's that's the way to go about it. Especially when around the world, there's so many other things that are, you know, deeply, uh, you know, problematic, and 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 you know, all we need to have good resources for for a lot of things and and have a a wider lens. I think on stuff. Um, well, you've been so nice with your time and with all of your, your wisdom and your thoughts. I've, I've had such a wonderful conversation. Uh, where's the, the best places for people to find your work and to find you online or, or otherwise? Yeah. Thank you so much. This was super fun. Um, always good to go really deep on these issues. Um, I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram, both at Salome Sibone, which I imagine you can put, you know, just copy paste the text. I won't bother trying to spell it out. No one's going to write it down in real time. But yeah, Twitter, if you want unhinged takes and um, analysis of current events that is not just my side, your side. And Instagram, if you want... I don't know. What did I do recently? I did like a whole thing on how beauty has like an objective element to it mm. and is not entirely subjective. So if that speaks to you, you can find me on Instagram. Mm. And those are the best ways. I don't think anybody like needs my website, but if you did for some reason, uh, it's the same. It's my name at .com. Okay. 
Well, this was, again, so wonderful. I appreciate you uh, taking your time and and it was so like thought provoking and such a wonderful, uh, just engaging conversation. So, you know, big, big thanks for you uh, giving me your time and energy and your thoughts. I, I really value it. Oh, absolutely. It was super fun. Thank you. Okay. Of course. Thank you. <laughs>